Hello and welcome back to All My Darlings. That was a little abrupt. Hello. <laughs> uh, we're reading Harp Song for a Radical. The Life and Times of Eugene Victor Debs. Written by Margaret Young. We're on chapter 18 and it's a little bit longer. On page 57. Those, oh, and then I started, well, let me see this real quick. Yeah, this is about what? One, two, it's about three pages long. A little bit over. Um, so I started putting in links on Substack to historical people and events. Um, and I was, I'm finding the urge to not get carried away. And do the Miss Macintosh, my darling thing. I mean, I really can't. And it's not, it's not needed. So um, I'm going to force myself to not do that and just post the links to different people and events the, in the book that, important people and events in the, that appear in the book that you might want to go back and look up some, some other details about them. Just because <clears throat> a lot of these I'm hearing about them for the first time. Like, I don't know who these people are. Matthew Arnold is one of them. Um, so like typed it in, looked it up. So I think I, so, so I have like episodes. So episode one is completely done. Uh, a chapter one is completely done. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I'm going to have to go back through, uh, chapter two through, um, Anyways, yeah, chapters two through, I have just a couple, but yeah, I'm on 18 now. So I, at some point I'm going to be working on going back to the other chapters and posting those links under uh, each chapter. This is on Substack. Um, uh, the links to the people and events under each chapter. That's uh, the, uh, what it is, is a, it's a link, to, if I could think there's a link to the, to this podcast that underneath that, I'm going to put the links to the different, uh, important people and events. Um, I'm going to try and break it up. I'm going to go back and do a better job of breaking it up per chapter. Yes. Okay. That's what I'm trying to get out. All right. <clears throat> I don't know. My voice is fine. Then I start to do this and it gets all froggy. Um, so let's try and get through this chapter 18. Those who knew of Hines fiscal problems, which came largely from his conviction that he should have been at, been or was a prince, but was an orphan and a pauper, could only have been amused or bemused by his concern for money, his desire to leave a nest egg for his fat widow when his mouth was stuffed with clay. Bugs, 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 he cried out upon his coffin mattress, that there were bugs, bugs, bugs crawling all over him, and that they were not gold bugs, they were bed bugs feeding on his blood. Marx with his own fairy tale, which was that communism would one day bring the death of the illusion of capitalism to the world if the paths shown by him were followed, that's true, had felt in the midst of his impoverished and lonely exile in London twinges of grief for the passage of the cantankerous old poet who had tended to believe that Marx and Engels had stolen the godhead for insertion into the cells of their own bodies. So far as Hein was concerned with his many egocentric egos pulsating in him, who had yearned to find the fountain of youth described by Ponce de Leon, and had been opposed to America's war with Mexico and the abuses of red and yellow and black people, and had been dead set against the Missouri Compromise, and who as a matter of biblical principles 
and who, as a matter of biblical principles, had identified himself when he was in, on his coffin bed with Harriet Beecher Stowe's poor old Uncle Tom. Oh yeah, there's like a reclaiming, I just saw a documentary of the reclaiming of, old, of Uncle Tom and who, the real person that it was based after, so I'll put that on my list to watch. Who, when he was dying in the deep American South, where there was more water than land, and where all the people should have been heron-footed, had been lifted upward to heaven by the angelic ghost of the golden-haired little Eva. The Hagelian world spirit had been in relation to reality the reflection of a drunkard's large red nose thrust forward like a promontory among the reflections of twinkling lights, like the lights of stars in minor galaxies. He had understood, during the revolution of 1848, that the proletariat rats running in the gutters were not motivated so much by the revolutionary teachings of Mirabeau, as by the soup bowl logic, the desire for bread in which to set their large teeth, and most particularly the desire for a fried codfish, which had been made golden by the butter of the sun. Marx had written from London to Ingalls in Manchester to express the twinges of irritation he had felt when reading Heine's erroneous account of the way Marx was supposed to have offered consolation to Heine when he was under attack in the German press for having accepted money from Louis Philippe. Marx, <clears throat> with his chronic headaches and his many griefs, thus caused both by his dedication to his economic research and by his poverty, which was so great that it might almost seem the magnificence of largesse for him who wished to overthrow the non-existent universal landlord as well as the existent landlords who owned nations as their property and private preserve, at the same time was under threat of being thrown into the gutter with his wife and his children because of his inability to pay the rent or ever to catch up with it, had been so impatient as to Hines' egregious errors that he had not paused at this point to take under the wing of his compassion that which he knew. The fact that Hines had moved his subjective kings and queens and pawns about a subjective chessboard was not given to an objective science of society, but to a science of dreams by which to prove whether or not his little ego or its reflection existed, which was real and which was dream. Marx, beset with his own apparitional things in the life of the individual, those that could not be dismissed in unsteady correlation to the objective society, which was itself based upon the appearances of the ghosts of illusion, as if they were real, had been grimly hopeful, when the revolution had apparently failed, that the people who were starving, like crows, should not be held back in their search for corn by some old raggedy scarecrow guarding despotic empires. The good hind, according to the somewhat impatient, impetuous analysis, dashed off by the ordinary patient Marx, had deliberately forgotten that his intervention on the poet's behalf had occurred in 1843, and thus could not be connected with what had come to light after the revolution of February 1848. But let it pass in English, Marx had continued. He was at this time practicing some simple English phrases as so be it, or hang it, or what to do, or you see to what low state of spirit I am depressed, or I am so poor that I am almost buried in sand. The latter indicating how very difficult it was for him to keep his wife and family alive in these chronically hard times, which were a continuation of the past and would be of that future which was left to come. So, but let it, sorry, I forgot to say, but let it pass. Uh, in brackets, I said, but let it pass in English. It's because uh, there's brackets. So it's, but let it pass, brackets in English. Uh, so these are the English phrases that Marx started using. <clears throat> in Marx, the death of the Marx's little boy Edgar, whom the father had once likened to a bright little pink, oh, whom the father had once likened to a bright little pint bomb, packed with enough energy to give off the rays of the sun if it ever went off, 
as it was threatening to do, so, do as the little boy was always bouncing around, had permanently darkened the skies. There had been no way by which the aristocratic, beautiful, alien wife and the obsessed diagnostician of the ills of capitalism could be permanently reconciled to the loss of this bright little creature whose energy had fizzled out in his father's arms and who, when he was interred, so far as the future which would be his in this world was concerned, might just as well have been a little bundle of pink sand laid in a place of wet leaf mold. Two other children had been lost in infancy. They were Heinrich Guido, called by Marx the Red Fox, and the little daughter Francisca, who had gone quite early to death's realm. He could not dismiss a bundle of pink sand to non-being, of course. What blinding headaches were suffered then by the future father of Red Marx's socialism, which would have as its other father or surrogate father Frederick Engels, who, as a young poet in Germany, had been a translator of part of Shelley's Queen Mab when English was went from English into the language of grunting, groaning hogs, and believed that from the combination of Hegel and Ludwig Born, one with eternal snow upon his brow, one with red cherries between his lips, would come the communal world. Few German exiles, keeping close tabs on such remarkable exiles as Hein and Born, could have failed to know that before they ever met, they had seemed as closely woven as Siamese twins, but that from the time of his coming to Paris, the poet who had once looked upon Bourne's letters from Paris as brightly burning paper missiles lighting the German fog had shown no desire to interweave with the absolute revolutionary in Montmartre, where there was also a good deal of fringed, fringed fog, and when their attacks and counterattacks had broken loose, had accused Bourne of being only a little drum major, envious of the great drum major because he had taller plumes and more gold medals than he. Bourne had once stated that if ever a king should reach out to touch his hand, then he would purify it by a baptism in fire. Hein replied that if a member of the dirty gutter proletariat should reach out to shake his hand, he would wash it with soap. The little bonafide traveler, as the English called the newborn, had been the youngest of Marx's daughters who would live into adulthood. She was Eleanor. The other two were Jenny and Laura. Eleanor had been welcomed into the crib, although it might have been easier for the mother and father, with her abiding sense of grief if she had been a boy, to take so far as possible the place of little Edgar, who quite early had gotten off that train, which, when Engels had first embarked on it, and no doubt there was no sound of mournful bells, had seemed to him the train to the future. There never would be another son who was the fruit of Mrs. Marx's loins, no cherry-lipped boy to take the place of the dead Edgar. A child born after Eleanor would be in a state that Marx called non-viable, meaning not fit for life, something in defective embryo, and that was all right. It was evidently all right to fall from the womb into the grave and thus miss most of the experience of life. Over the door of Mrs. Marx's womb, a funeral wreath of pale winter leaves with black and red ribbons might just as well have been laid. She was never to be consoled. Household pressures on Marx was very great, his poverty so acute that he had considerable difficulty keeping up with his payments to the milkman or paying for yesterday's stale bread or a soup bone or a few old half-rotted tomato potatoes for a thin soup and no egg like a great magical eye floating in the pot to ward off evil as in a primitive fairy tale. Indeed, had it not been for the angelic Ingalls' help, Marx's children might have been stunted of growth with little potato eyes set close together, their skins brown and shriveled like brown potato skins, as were the skins of the children of the poor, who worked in mills and mines and seldom saw the light of the sun. Or else, because of his inability to pay the rent to the local landlord, he whose communistic philosophy was opposed not only to local landlords, but to the universal landlord who existed 
Only in capitalistic mythologies might have been tossed out with his family into the rain-swept, muddy gutter with pots and pans and his wife's precious, precious chinaware, if it was not already in hawk at the pot and broker's shop. And this might have seemed not too different from others of the dispossessed and other often lowly wanderers who were the sediment at the bottom of the social scale and had no rational ideal might easily be misled by false signal lights. Sometimes Marx was so poor that he could not afford the paper and envelopes and quills for pens and stamps for the articles which he wrote for pay for the New York Tribune, of which the perfectionist editor White Hat Horace Greeley, in his white hat and white coat, was receiving at this time by the dirtiest stairs in the world, or so they were called, manuscripts by foreign geniuses who were surely of no common garden variety and who included the anarchist Proudhon and Marx, the rejecter of philosophic anarchism. Marx was suffering from blinding headaches. Still in all, and although his pecuniary problems dwarfed those of Hein, who by comparison with him lived in luxury and wore his long-tailed evening suits so heavily perfumed that he could have been surrounded by bees buzzing in wintertime, Marx, in the midst of domestic burdens, was able to lift off from London, in a footnote of a letter to Ingalls in Manchester, a few puffs of steam, a few rasping chords by which to express his angry response to the insults paid to the recently dead Hein by Ludwig Simon de of Trier in the pages of the New York Newsight, which was the organ of the quondam lion of the Parliament of the German nation, in real life Wilhelm Lowe, who was now living in retirement in Stuttgart. The name of Simon of Trier was anathema to Marx for a variety of reasons, mainly secular. What Engels had not yet seen in his isolation in Manchester, but had been seen by Marx in his isolation in London, was the article in the magazine in which Simon of Trier had pissed on the recently dead poet Hein's grave, writing hastily and at that time fascinated by the old northern Teutonic sound, Marx had meant to say that Simon of Trier had poured his urine upon the poet's grave, which was, after all, in Mount Mart. The poet or minstrel Simon of Trier, who was also a lawyer and politician, who would eventually become one of the immigrants going from German to Switzerland, was in all likelihood too competitive, too biased, to be a good assayer of talents, and thus he had found that the dead poet had been no poet and had had no feeling. Very offensive to Marx was the attack upon Hein as a man who had been filled with malice and slandered, among others, the widow of Salman Strauss, Jeanette Wollstrauss, who, as was well known, had given shelter to her in her household to the proletariat revolutionary born when both he and her husband had been alive, and when some had thought that the merchant had been cuckolded, and others that the radical guest had been an impotent watcher through a keyhole of conjugal kneading together of a love that he could never share. Marx's quick objections had been in the way the self-serving Simon of Trier had tried to bring to light, now in this period of chaos of many exiles, Hein's characterization of Bourne's girlfriend, the Strauss woman, as a gross curly-headed mouse, muse, or she Moses, certainly not a very flattering portrait of the pro probable but problematical love object of a revolutionary of whom the dead poet had once stated that his hand, unlike the hand of Bourne, had not been corrupted by touching upon the dirt and filth of the gutter mob, or by touching the gold of the money of kings who were the killers of the poor. Hein had believed at this point that he himself was the revolutionary on a ship that had been driven far ahead of Bourne's. Simon's From the Exile was, in Marx's opinion, nothing but a work of diluted 
rapidity, and every word was a schoolboyish bungle of boppish rabbit's foot, a pretension to naivete, as it seemed to appeal to beggars. It was a soup in which were mixed the dissolved jew cherries of Carl Grun and his platitudes. What mediocrity, what slander. I am going to have to look up all these people. I have no idea who she's talking about, except for Marx and Engels. All these things were not news to Engels, of course, since it had been in August, a decade before, when Marx had first been told to pack his bags and get out of France. That the cotton lord from Owen's millennial Manchester had first gone to Paris to try to dissuade German workers in exile there from joining such partial pocket cooperative utopian movements as those which Proud Hahn had proposed in his contradictions in economics, and which Karl Grun, like an off-key millennial rooster, had lauded to the sky at a time when the ways to universal improvement were unclear, and the goal was wrapped in an enigma that, like the enigma of night, was greater than the enigma of day. Marx had only browsed through the pages of From the Exile. His complaint had been that he would just as soon have drunk soap water or have imbibed hot cow piss with the great Zoroaster than be forced to read through the work as a whole. <laughs> wow. Okay. Hey. Those uh, those nineteenth-century people knew how to sling an insult. <laughs> um. Oh. Um. Excuse me. Um. Yes, that was a longer chapter. I think the cha- I think longer, longish chapters are about that size. Anyway, I have some catching up to do to try and get some links to these people that Young's talking about in the book from that time. It's all very interesting. They're they're all real. They all exist. They're just not something who... I mean... Especially in the U.S., but they're definitely not people that are going to be talked about in education. Even more so with the fiasco's going on to ban stuff um, that's going on in the States right now. But anywho, interesting, all very interesting. All right, thanks for listening. Bye.